Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey, I'm Rochelle and welcome to the Wild Lives podcast. Today I'd like to welcome back England-based naturalist and wildlife photographer James Rogerson, who has recently been working on some incredible photo projects with UK wildlife, particularly otters and badgers. Before we start chatting to James about all things badger, let's get some background on everyone's favourite muster lid, the otter. While pesticide pollution in the waterways had all but wiped out Britain's otters by the 1970s, the Scottish population survived. And today, there are more than 8,000 of them across the country, in locks, rivers and along the coast. Otters can eat up to 15% of their own body weight per day. And as their eyesight is poor, they use their whiskers to track fish movements. One of the things that makes otters so endearing is their effervescent natures. In fact, the collective noun for a group of otters is a romp, which is not surprising, seeing as though they're such playful animals. In fact, they've been observed making mudslides on the riverbanks and sliding down them just for the fun of it. Hey, James, thanks for joining us. Uh, hey, Rochelle, good to speak to you. Yeah, you too, mate. You've actually been spending a fair bit of time in Scotland this year and you've taken some awesome pics of otters there. What initially drew you to these animals? I'd say it's probably um, the, the area that drew me there first. So the west coast of Scotland is, you know, it's like a, it's, it's a, the best, one of the best wildlife havens we've got in the UK. Uh, and, and otters are a, a big part of that. So the location first, of course, you see signs of otters and want to see more of them and they're probably one of the first animals I really wanted to get close to and photograph when I started with uh, photography. So so why though did you choose otters? Are they like a special animal for you or a favourite? Yeah, they definitely are, yeah. They're, they're just, they're so diverse and they live in, you know, such different worlds. So you get them in freshwater, uh, coastal environments, the sea, uh, they're nocturnal, they can be active during the day, they're proficient hunters on land and in water. They're just like, you know, if you can imagine an, an animal with, like, superpowers, you know, <laughs> otters have got to be it. You know, there, there aren't too many species that could make a go of so many different habitats. So, yeah, I mean, what's, what's not to love? <laughs> <laughs> I think if you see them, I'll tell you what, it, it, it sounds overblown, but if you've seen them, maybe even like a, a mother and, and tiny cubs that look so vulnerable out in a stormy sea fishing. And you think, you know, you, you're worried about them and they're fine. And they, you know, they, they cope in freezing temperatures, managing to catch fish, avoiding sharp rocks, and then just having a little roll off in the grass and then going back home for sleep, you know. You just mentioned that you'll often see the mum and the cubs out there frolicking together. Are the otters you observe social creatures or are they pretty much loners apart from, you know, when they're young? So it's, Yes and no. Now, if you talk about um, females, they're social when they're with the cubs. You know, they spend the, the cubs are glued to them for a year or so, and they wean at about thirteen months old. So they're glued to mum for that length of time. Uh, once they mature, she's going to kick them out of their territory. Um, so outside of that sort of cycle, they're quite solitary. I mean, dog otters are a good, better example. They're quite different. Uh, almost completely solitary unless it comes to you know mating and it's quite interesting you'll get females won't tolerate other females in their territory and males won't tolerate other males in their territory so you'll get one male that might cover a, you know a few kilometers of coastline and there'll be several a couple of females within that area but you know they, they don't tolerate members of the same sex 
at all. I have seen a couple of examples where that's happened, but they tend to be related animals. And even then, they uh, they avoid each other by being active at different times of the day. So I can think of one stretch of coastline where there's a, a two female otters breeding breeding animals. In fact, they've both got cubs at the moment, probably side by the same male. Uh, one of them is active at night, and one of them is active during the day. It could be a coincidence, but you know, it looks to me like that's uh, a measure to sort of keep out of each other's way. You know, to sit side by side and live side by side without too much conflict. That's pretty amazing. How about with their food, though? Have you learned how they find it or hunt for it? Yeah, so um, I said, you know, the, the different habitats that they hunt in, and they take advantage of lots of different types of food sources throughout the year. Obviously, we're talking about otters mainly on the coast, and that's where you're more likely to see them. Coastal otters hunt at very particular times, so they usually go for uh, low tide. So what happens is when the tide goes out, there's more of the seabed exposed. And an otter that's got like maybe like a 20-second time limit you know, for holding its breath can then access more of that seabed. If they were you know, hunting out at high tide, they wouldn't really be able to access much of the seabed and access the crabs and the small fish and things like that that, that live down there. But it's not only a marine you know, environment that they take advantage of, freshwater Otters will take advantage of birds as well, nesting ducks and moorhens and coots, baby swans. <laughs> Don't hate otters just because they eat baby swans, but I've, I've heard that. Other small mammals as well. I've seen them bringing things like lobster. I watched one that's quite interesting recently bringing a ray, you know, a huge uh, thornback ray. I mean, with the length of the tail, it was probably something like four feet, four or five feet. And... Um, it's, uh, you know, there's just these huge sort of flaps of, of white fins coming out of the water and this fight in, in, in a harbour. Incredible to watch. And, of course, the otter managed to overpower it, dragged it in and, and ate it underneath the harbour. But um, they, anything that they can try and take, they will do. Let's use the sense of smell to find their food. And there's some interesting research that's been done recently that uh, suggests that what they actually do is when they get close to the, where they think their prey is, they blow a bubble of air around their nose and they'll have their nose wedged into a sort of, you know, a, a rock or a, a rocky crevices or seaweed. And that will enable them to um, to smell where their prey is, you know, much better. Because, of course, they can smell better through air rather than through water. Yeah, they're, they're incredible. What about in urban environments? I think you mentioned when we were talking before we actually started recording something about there's a potential of an otter that you found in an urban environment recently. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, urban otters and there's a couple of spots that I've been keeping keeping an eye on with uh, trail cameras. So uh, the one that we were talking about, it's a bit of a long shot, but I, f- I managed to find a spot along a canal in a city uh, where something had been eating pigeons on the side of the uh, canal. And it, there's only one area along this, because often canal sides are flat concrete they're quite difficult for animals to get out of, but there's one area where the banks collapsed and there's a bit of a slope. And uh, I just found these pigeon carcasses that had been eaten, you know, and this is what they do when otters, they'll have a favorite haul out. So even when they're fishing out in the sea and they're going out to get crabs and fish and, and sea urchins and things like that, they'll bring them into their favorite spot where they feel comfortable and eat them on the bank. So something they've been doing that with pigeons, I, I think it could well be an urban otter. They do roost on some of the low-hanging bridges over the canal. and You've got a duck to get on, underneath them. So they're only like, you know, five foot high. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that an otter would be able to smell those pigeons, climb up there, 
take them into the water, probably drown them and then eat them on the bank. But I've not got any footage. It's, it's a busy spot. It's in a city. I've left a few trail cameras out there at night, but I've not managed to catch them yet. But hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, I'll, I'll manage to catch them at it. That's and I do know of some otters that live in a, a theme park. It's got water and water rides, and, and that's, you know, it's a pretty noisy, <laughs> busy place. And I've got, um, I've got a few bits of footage. I've had a trail camera, uh, uh, sorry, a DSLR camera trap system out there for quite a long time and not managed to catch them. But they're so wary. Their sense of smell is so good, you know. They'll know that there's something there that's not usually there. I've caught them on trail cameras, but not managed to get the, you know, the interesting shots with a, a DSLR and flash systems yet. In a theme park, like where would they even live in a theme park? So it's got a, a river that runs alongside it, and some of the rides are water-based, and they, they're along these stretches of pools and, and rivers. So there's a lot of water there. There are a lot of fish there as well, so uh, it's it, it's not that surprising. I found actually found this huge pike head. It's about thirty centimeters long, and uh, and the tail was just floating. It was right next to the um, otter's sprain site, so you can often tell they're there if you're looking for signs of otters. The the one thing, the the best sort of telltale sign, if you like, is uh, is their sprain, so their droppings, mm. and they're usually on really conspicuous rocks or you know bumps along the um, edge of a, a river and along coastlines as well. They'll use a, a conspicuous spot because it's an advert to other otters that they're there. So if you know where to look, uh, you can you can see them. And they're definitely there. The, the, the sprints are there, fresh sprints, caught them on trail cameras. They're eating the fish that are in these lakes and, and rivers, even though there are rides going along <laughs> above them. <laughs> and apparently, yeah, the, the, some of the security guys have said that they've seen them there, you know, during the day as well. I think people don't notice them. They're too busy getting their thrills on the rides and don't <laughs> notice they're there, but they are. They're pretty surprising little dudes. What other behaviours, you know, apart from them living amongst us like that, what other behaviours do you find surprising? I guess some of the ways, some of the different kinds of prey species that they go for so even the marine sort of coastal otters at certain times of the year will take to uh, freshwater pools that might be close to the coastline and go for things like toads so frogs and toads make up quite a big part of their diet around sort of you know march april that sort of time of year when they're spawning and they're all you know they're easy pickings and i've come across this a few times where they skin toads So toads have got toxins in their skin. Um, one of them is known as a bufotoxin, and it can be it can induce vomiting, and it doesn't taste particularly nice. So it's it's a measure, you know, to stop predators from eating them. You quite often see, you know, species will grab, like even snakes will grab a hold of it, and they'll regurgitate a toad, and it will survive, you know, even though it's been half eaten because of these toxins. But an otter will catch it and skin it and get rid of all the toxins and eat all the, the, the fresh meat inside, you know, that hasn't got any of that, uh, that nasty toxin in it. And, yeah, it's, it's incredible. And so, I don't know how they, how they manage to do it because, you know, they've got these little cute little paws, you know, not unlike dog paws. They're not that dexterous. It's not like, you know, they've got like primate hands or anything like that, but they still manage to skin the, take the skin off, eat the flesh and, and take advantage of it, you know. would be a glut of a food source. It's just crazy. Like, mm. what you've told me now has just changed. Like, I just see them as these little dudes that just scamper around and lie on their backs and, you know, but, like, they're pretty stealthy and very, very clever. You've actually observed some pretty amazing stuff in the field recently because you've been photographing them. If you had to pick one close encounter, you can have more than one, but just start <laughs> with one close encounter that you've yeah. had this year. Tell us about your favourite. 
so um, maybe not this year. Uh, last year, I had a really close encounter with some cubs, and it's actually really important that you don't let them get close to you. And when some good advice, if you're trying to photograph them, the aim is always to stay downwind, stay low, stay out of sight, and wait for them to come to you. So you can quite often see which direction they're swimming along a coast. They'll, you know, leave their halt and, and swim one direction down the coast and look for different food sources and then come back again as the tide comes in. So you know where they're headed and they always go for the little rocky outcrops that stick out into the sea and that's where they're going to come out, take any prey that they've eat, that they've caught and eat it. So if you can be in the right place, you can get the best shots without even having to move and without disturbing them. But sometimes you know, they take a U-turn and they go the wrong, the wrong direction and that's happened a couple of times. And I've literally, you know, I've had, this is on the Shetland, I've had a mother, three cubs. She's out fishing. The cubs are sort of following, you know, not really paying too much attention. And they all disappeared. And then I couldn't find them. I started looking, you know, left and right, trying to stay low, no idea where they are. And then they emerge from the sea, you know, right in front of you. Mum's got some food, drops the food. I think it was a scorpion fish, which is like a quite brightly coloured fish with these really long spikes. And the cubs are right in front eating the scorpion fish. No idea that I'm there way too close to take any pictures. You know, you don't want to because of the noise. And once mum had gone, they settled down. And there was, there was one of them was literally inches away from my boot, you know, just sat there asleep, totally oblivious. I mean, you tend to get these close encounters with the young the youngsters because they're just not as wary. Mum's always really wary. But on this occasion, she hadn't even seen me, you know. And oh. she did come back, come back, you know, right, you know, give calls all the cubs to get back in the water and they follow her along the coast again. But it's just like, you know, you're worried. You don't want to disturb them. You don't want to separate them. And you've got to make sure that you don't do that if you're trying to photograph them. But on that occasion, it was all fine. But <laughs> just just looking at it, like, oh, my goodness, because their eyesight's so poor, you see. So as long as you're staying downwind, which I was at the time, and you're staying low and you're not moving, they really don't know you're there. That's amazing. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the, the, every encounter is a magic encounter. They're always there's always something new, and there's because they're so diverse in the way that they hunt, and you know, because they're so active, they're like they're on amphetamines. You know, they're they when they hunt, they're they're in and out, in and out, back up the sea, bring something out again. And you just think, goodness me! And if you watch them, you know that they're, they're almost constantly eating small things they eat out at sea so that you can you know you sometimes you can hear them if you're close enough chomping away it's only the big stuff that they tend to bring in but it's literally it's non-stop so that hunting fishing period you know when the tide's out low they take advantage of that and then once that's done they go back and sleep it off so if you've got them and you've got them in your in your line of sight you're always guaranteed with a you know something special something special is going to happen well everyone loves an otter Badgers do often cop a bad rap, mostly because they live in urban areas and also because of their perceived health risk to humans and to livestock. But are these creatures simply misunderstood? The Eurasian badger belongs to the Mastillidae family, so it's related to weasels, wolverines and otters, and there are around 300,000 of them in the United Kingdom. Known for its distinctive black and white stripy faces and white-tipped ears, badgers are nocturnal, omnivorous and live underground. Their burrows, or sets, are complex constructions with different rooms, nests, tunnels and entrances. And these last generations, with some sets being hundreds of years old. Badgers are famously house-proud too. They line their sets with dry grass and bracken and are known to take this bedding outside periodically to air it out so as to remove fleas and lice. 
Inside the sets, badgers live in clans of up to 20 individuals. While woodlands are their preferred habitat, they are sometimes found in suburban and urban environments. As a result, around 50,000 badgers are killed on the UK's roads each year. So James, tell us about badgers. You've taken a stack of great photos of them over the years. What intrigues you about them? Well, for a start, they're another mustelid. So they're related to otters and like otters, they share that adaptability. You know, they can take advantage of lots of different food sources throughout the year, living in different kinds of environments. And they're interesting as well because they, they occupy the same space that we do in the cities and in the countryside. You know, it's just a different time scale. They're out at night, you know, when we're all asleep. So that means you do find them in urban environments, don't you? Yeah, and it, it's surprising. People just don't often realise that they're there. So I've come across them in uh, old pottery works. So um, the, the town that I live in uh, has a long history of uh, the ceramics industry. And a lot of these old areas are, that were part of a bustling industry are now disused. And these areas have been taken over by wildlife, foxes, badgers. And, uh, it, it, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. They use those as sort of, you know, little, little points. And that's where their home, that's where their set will be. But quite often you'll see them occasionally, you know, scurrying across the road on a, you know, next to sort of churchyards and those sort of places. Not where you'd expect them to be at all. I found a, a set recently underneath a, a bridge. It's a road. It's a road bridge. It's quite busy. It's really close to the centre of town. And as far as I'm aware, nobody else knows that they're there. You know, they, the, the, there's a, a park fairly close by. I spoke. I always speak to local people. That's one of the best ways of getting, you know, good intel just striking up a conversation uh, and I'd seen a few signs of badgers around and uh, everybody told me no no they're not there I couldn't find a set so I was following some trails uh, and one of them sort of led along a low wall and then they just went under the bridge just disappeared under the bridge so they don't have a conventional set that's a dug hole in the earth they literally live under a concrete bridge and they've got their own doorway. And I've got some, uh, some footage uh, that I've taken from a trail camera that I put inside. And it's, yeah, it's interesting. They like to sort of sit underneath the shelter and look out, you know, check the weather, smell, you know, check everything's okay before they go out and feed. And as far as I'm aware, nobody knows they're there. So these sets are actually in high traffic areas. Apparently, from what I've read, 20 individuals can live in a set at any one time. How does that work socially? Are they related? Is there a hierarchy? What's the social dynamic like? Yeah, so they can be pretty busy places, badger sets. Generally, they are somewhat related, and that depends on the sex of the animals. So the boars, and male badgers are referred to as boars, are where the genetic mixing goes on. So they will up and leave and move into different uh, territories. And then as they mature, so the cubs mature, the males will go off and move to different territories. It's interesting because there are far fewer boars within a set. And part of that is to do with the fact that they end up coming uh, into contact with traffic um, and persecution because they're out roaming a lot more. There's a much higher mortality rate. So there where the genetic mixing goes on. Not to say that the females don't move as well, because that does happen occasionally. You've also got a situation where dominant females are the only ones that breed within a set. It's not always the case, but generally the case. So you've got a subordinate female. Sometimes she will move because she wants to have her cubs. So she'll go and, you know, make a set on her own somewhere. But also you can get badger sets with just a couple in there. You know, some of these urban ones tend to be quite small and there'll be the little pockets of, you know, urban sets dotted around. And it's interesting because they also create these 
these way markers, uh, territory boundaries, if you like. So badgers will um, deposit their scat, their feces, in something called a latrine. And they're quite often on the edge of badger territories. So you'll be able to see, you know, lines through a field maybe. You know, they're quite obvious badger trails because they're, they're quite low to the ground and they're quite stocky animals. And then you'll see where the latrines are and they'll mark the edge of a territory. They also sometimes use them to mark favourite feeding areas. So they're really fond of blackberry bushes. And, uh, you know, if that's their favourite feeding spot, then you'll see, you know, lots of little pits, about a fist-sized pit with, with badger poo in there. And that's a good way of them saying, you know, this is our, our feeding spot, you know, communicating that information to other badger clans that might be nearby. What are some of the other interesting behaviours that you've heard about or observed from them? So, um, again, another mustelid, everything revolves around food. <laughs> Life revolves around food. Badgers have got the most amazing sense of smell. Otters have got a good sense of smell. Badgers are even better. I mean, these guys can smell, you know, earthworms in the ground, and that's their primary food source. However, they'll go for other things. And I've heard some anecdotal evidence of badgers, you know, getting into water to look for prey. And, and I know somewhere locally it's got a badger set next to a river. And this is somewhere where they have a lot of red signal crayfish, which are actually an invasive species. And, and I've seen bits of chewed up crayfish on the banks of this river. And I know there are no otters there because that would be the obvious go-to answer for that sort of those sort of signs but there are no otters there and i spoke to some of the um park wardens and you know they said yeah it could be we think it might be it's not something i've managed to capture yet i haven't put a camera out there but i wouldn't put it past them and i do know that they will swim out to sometimes quite far nesting birds on sandbanks so the badgers can smell those birds out on the sandbank and they'll swim out there they're not really going for the adult birds they take the eggs and they can devastate you know entire colonies of nesting birds so if, if there's, a, there's an opportunity there then they will take it they're not just a carnivore of course they'll take berries at certain times of the year and they'll climb up to low-hanging trees as well and finding their way wherever that smell leads them to be honest mm. if there's something there they'll take advantage there's lots of stories as well about people putting up fences you know new housing estates being built you know on a badger's feeding trail and they put up these fences and then uh, you know within a few days a badger smashed a hole through because you know you put it in the way of its favorite trail to lead to its blackberry bushes or you know whatever so yeah they're pretty tough animals despite the fact that they get a hard time you know so you just mentioned that you know they potentially live in the same habitat or their habitat would overlap potentially with an otter's who would win a fight between a badger and an otter i I mean the badgers obviously yeah they're they're very few things because they're quite a stocky heavy animal especially a boar you know the males are really big animals and um, they're, they're our biggest carnival in the UK. We oh. don't have anything else, you know. Foxes we have, but they're quite slightly built. They're nowhere near as heavy and as powerful as a badger. Mm. Uh, something's quite interesting. If you look at their skull, they have, I mean, this is to do with defense. You know, they don't really need such a strong skull. They've got this crest along the back of their skull called a sagittal crest. And it's where the jaw muscles attach. And a badger's bite's incredibly strong. And that's all about defense you know, defending themselves against i guess what would have been you know wolves you know, things like that or the predators that we used to have in this country bears maybe that might try and dig them out of a set but um yeah they're um they're a, they're a tough animal yeah you wouldn't want to get if you see one by the side of the road and it's been injured you don't try and pick it up yeah you, oh. you try and you know call, call the right people and get it dealt with um, safely what's been your favorite badger encounter so far i think it's probably when cubs come out you know, so early on in the summer, you will see the cubs start to emerge. And 
a lot like you know I was, I was talking about the otter cubs being a lot less wary of people cubs is the same cubs are the same with badgers you know they haven't really learned to fear people so getting to watch them play is is pretty special and uh, you know they're all around chase each other around quite often when i'm trying to get badgers used to me i will use a bit of bait to sort of smooth things over something like peanut butter peanuts and i think on one occasion i put a little bit of peanut butter up in a tree just to sort of you know get their attention and you know Occasionally, you get to see them climb up there. Well, they were taking turns. We've got two cubs taking turns to climb up the tree, try and get to the peanut butter. And as one was climbing, the other one would grab one by the tail, pull it out of the tree, and then it'd startle it. It'd run off a little bit, and the other one would get up there. And then the one that had run off would come back, say, hang on, you know, that's mine. Grab the uh, the other animal by the tail, pull it out of the tree, you know, and this sort of went on for a couple of minutes. Yeah, they're incredible. I mean, if you get the chance to sort of watch them and them not be aware that you're there you get to see all these sort of you know these really interesting behaviors you just normally you just imagine them as just like a dirt snuffling little stocky furball but there's so much more to it than that when you watch them interact with each other from the other side of the world it's kind of hard to understand what's going on with the badger cull can you explain a little bit about it okay so the evidence is pretty straightforward it's the politics that's complicated basically badgers get tb What's TB? TB, bovine tuberculosis. They catch it from cattle, from infected cattle. And we have quite a lot of infected cattle in the UK. Part of that was because we had a, a foot and mouth outbreak some sort of 20 years ago. We've had, them, we've had more than one. And a lot of farms lost all their cattle. Uh, and in order to repopulate, they temporarily stopped TB screening. And the numbers... The number of TB instances in cattle actually went up something like 200, 300%. It was an insane increase. So we've spread it ourselves. It's not the badger's fault. The badgers are just sort of suffering from poor biosecurity within the dairy and beef industry. So a lot of people in the government and with the support of farmers have introduced the badger coal. So really, they've been a, a bit of a scapegoat. So most of the issue is with cattle and biosecurity, but it's an easy option to point a gun at something, you know, rather than look at your own shortcomings within an industry and have an overhaul and solve the problem at its source. Really, this, this call is to placate farmers that have suffered, and they have suffered with TB, that if the cattle test positive, then, you know, they have to be put to sleep. But it's even more complicated because the test is about only 50% effective. So it only, you know, shows up as positive 50% of the time. So it's, it's only sort of half accurate. And most of the TB transmission, it's over 90%, is from within the herd. It's not from badgers at all, you know. So they're a symptom of the problem. Uh, and, of course, you know, animal welfare groups uh, quite rightly up in arms about it. There are other options. So there's a, a vaccination scheme. And in one particular county in Derbyshire, they've really sort of, you know, run with this vaccination scheme, which is incredibly cheap because it's run mainly by volunteers. It works out, and I'm talking in pounds here, so it's uh, about sort of £80 pounds per animal, per badger uh, to be vaccinated. And the coal, in comparison, can cost, you know, between sort of anything up to sort of five and £20,000 Wow. per badger depending on where it's on how it's been financed and, and where it's been run so you know it's it's just it's just a shame there are protected species and within living memory this this sort of thing just hasn't happened before and there are so many examples all over the world where an animal has had a bounty on its head because that's what's happened here people are being paid 50 pounds you know per head per badger shot 
and you do something like that, you know, to a protected speech season, it just it just sets such a, a poor precedent, even in areas where the Badger Court hasn't been approved and hasn't been rolled out officially. We're starting to see, you know, uh, more instances of crime against badgers. So they've been illegally shot just because people think, well, it's happening elsewhere. Well, I'll deal with the situation myself. It kind of justifies it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, the only consolation that I can take from that at the moment is that you get some fantastic photos of them. And so if we can promote a bit more about their lives and their importance in their native environment, that's, you know, one way to help counterattack it, really, isn't it? It is. I mean, you're not going to change a farmer's mind. I mean, you can imagine if you've lost half of your stock to TB, you're going to do anything possible, anything you possibly can mm. to stop that from happening again. You, you know, why take a chance? I do understand it. Uh, and you say, you know, yeah, taking pictures at, at different sets. Well, I've had two of my best locations disturbed this year. And I, one of them, I don't know why. It's a set that's not too far from me. And over the past two years, really, to get them used to me, Last year, I got some great images. This year, I haven't even seen them emerge before dark. And, and I'm certain they're not in a cold zone, but they are close to dairy farms. And I'm certain you know, that there's some sort of negative interaction that they've had with people has caused that. There's no other reason really for them to change so dramatically. And I even photographed guys digging out a badger set at, uh, at another location that I've, that I've worked at in the past. Yeah, tragic reported it to the police, but it didn't go any further, you know, but still, you know, badger set's supposed to be protected. Well, it's certainly a complicated issue, but in the meantime, we'll enjoy looking at all your amazing pics and following your adventures through Scotland and the UK. Thank you so much for your time today, James. It's been awesome to catch up. Yeah, good to speak to you, Michelle, as always. Thanks for listening. If you haven't yet looked up James's amazing otter and badger photos, do yourself a favour and check them out on his website at www.jr-wildlife.com and on Instagram at jr.wildlife. You can also buy his prints and grab some info about his wildlife photography workshops. Of course, I'll post all those links on faunographic.com where you'll also find all our podcast episodes. Have a listen and let us know what you think. Till next time. Happy wildlifing. Wildlives by Fornographic. Check out our wildlife photo gallery at fornographic.com and on Instagram at fornographic. Mm-hmm.